Chapter 25 of Memories and Adventures by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by A Fine Voice. Memories and Adventures by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter 25 To the Rocky Mountains in 1914. Baseball, Parkman, Ticonderoga, Prairie Towns, Procession of Ceres, Relics of the Past, A Moose, Prospects for Emigrants, Jasper Park, The Great Divide, Algonquin Park. In 1914, with little perception of how near we were to the greatest event of the world's history, we accepted an invitation from the Canadian government to inspect the National Reserve at Jasper Park in the Northern Rockies. The Grand Trunk Railway, Canadian, made matters easy for us by generously undertaking to pass us over their system and to place a private car at our disposal. This proved to be a gloriously comfortable and compact little home, consisting of a parlour, a dining room and a bedroom. It belonged to Mr. Chamberlain, the president of the line, who allowed us the use of it. Full of anticipation, we started off in May upon our long and pleasant journey. Our first point was New York, where we hoped to put in a week of sightseeing, since my wife had never been to America. Then we were to go north and meet our kind hosts of Canada. At the Plaza Hotel of New York, we found ourselves in pleasant quarters for a hectic week. Here are a few impressions. We went to see a baseball game at New York. A first-class match, as we should say, or some game, as a native expert described it. I looked on it all with the critical but sympathetic eyes of an experienced, though decrepit, cricketer. The men were fine fellows, harder looking than most of our professionals. Indeed, they trained continually and some of the teams had even before the days of prohibition to practice complete abstinence, which is said to show its good results, not so much in physical fitness as in the mental quickness which is very essential in the game. The catching seemed to me extraordinarily good, especially the judging of the long catches near the bleachers, as the outfields which are far from any shade are called. The throwing in is also remarkably hard and accurate, and, if applied to cricket, would astonish some of our batsmen. The men earn anything from £1,000 to £1,500 in the season. This money question is a weak point of the game, as it is among our own soccer clubs, since it means that the largest purse has the best team, and there is no necessary relation between the player and the place he plays for. Thus we looked upon New York defeating the Philadelphia Athletics, but there was no more reason to suppose that New York had actually produced one team than that Philadelphia had produced the other. For this reason the smaller matches, such as are played between local teams or colleges, seem to me to be more exciting, as they do represent something definite. The pitcher is the man who commands the highest salary, and has mastered the hardest part of the game. His pace is remarkable, far faster, I should say, than any bowling, but of course it is a throw, and as such would not be possible in the cricket field. 
I had one uneasy moment when I was asked in Canada to take the bat and open a baseball game. The pitcher, fortunately, was merciful, and the ball came swift but true. I steadied myself by trying to imagine that it was a bat which I held in my grasp, and that this was a full toss, which asked to be hit over the ropes. Fortunately, I got it fairly in the middle, and it went on its appointed way, whizzing past the ear of a photographer, who expected me to pat it. I should not care to have to duplicate the performance, nor would the photographer. I took the opportunity when I was in New York to inspect the two famous prisons, the Tombs and Sing Sing. The Tombs is in the very heart of the city, and a gloomy, ill-boding place it is when seen from without. Within it is equally dismal. I walked round in a somewhat shame-faced way, for it makes you feel so when you encounter human suffering which you cannot relieve. Warders and prisoners seemed, however, to be cheerful enough, and there was an off-hand way of doing things which seemed strange after our rigid methods. A Chinese prisoner, for example, was standing at the bottom of the lift, and I heard the warder shout through the tube, "'Have you got room for another chink in number three? I had a talk with one strange Englishman, who was barred in like a wild beast. He spoke of the various prisons, of which he had a wide acquaintance, exactly as if they were hotels, which he was recommending or condemning. Toronto is a very poor show. The food is bad. I hope I may never see Toronto jail again. Detroit is better. I had quite a pleasant time in Detroit, and so on. He spoke and looked like a gentleman, but I could quite imagine, in spite of his genial manner, that he was a dangerous crook. When I left him, he said, well, bye-bye, sorry you have to go. We can't all be out and about, can we? In the same week, I went to Sing Sing, the state penitentiary, which is some twenty miles from the city, on the banks of the Hudson. It is an ancient building, dating from the middle of last century, and it certainly should be condemned by a rich and prosperous community. By a strange coincidence, the convicts were having one of their few treats in the year that day, and I was able to see them all assembled together in the great hall, listening to a music-hall troupe from New York. Poor devils! All the forced, vulgar gaiety of the songs, and the antics of half-clad women, must have provoked a terrible reaction in their minds. Many of them had, I observed, abnormalities of cranium, or of features which made it clear that they were not wholly responsible for their actions. There was a good sprinkling of coloured men among them. Here and there I noticed an intelligent, and even a good face, one wondered how they got there. I was locked up afterwards in one of the cells, seven feet by four, and I was also placed in the electrocution chair, a very ordinary stout caned bottom seat, with a good many sinister wires dangling round it. I had a long talk with the governor, who seemed in himself to be a humane man, but terribly hampered by the awful building which he had to administer. One morning of early June, my Lady Sunshine and I, if I may be allowed to quote the charmingly appropriate name which the New York press had given to my wife, left New York for Parkmanland, which I had long wished to explore. We were glad to get away, as we had been considerably harassed by the ubiquitous and energetic American reporter. This individual is really, in nine cases out of ten, a very good fellow, and if you will treat him with decent civility, he will make the best of you with the public. It is absurd for travellers to be rude to him, as is too often the attitude of the wandering Briton. 
The man is under orders from his paper, and if he returns without results, it is not a compliment upon his delicacy which will await him. He is out to see you and describe you, and if he finds you an ill-tempered, cantankerous curmudgeon, he very naturally says so, and turns out some excellent spicy reading at your expense. The indignant Briton imagines that this is done in revenge. The reporter would not be human if it did not amuse him to do it, but it very often represents the exact impression which the vituperative traveller has made upon the pressman. Himself, as often as not, an overworked and highly strung man. Reminiscences of interviews are occasionally amusing. I can remember that on my previous visit I was approached one night by an interviewer in a very marked state of intoxication. He was so drunk that I wondered what in the world he would make of his subject, and I bought his paper next day to see. To my amusement I found that I had made the worst possible impression upon him. He had found no good in me at all. He may even have attributed to me his own weakness, like the Scotch toper who said, Sandy drank that hard that by the end of the evening I couldn't see him. To return to Parkmanland, I am surprised to find how few Americans and fewer Canadians there are who appreciate that great historian at his true worth. I wonder whether any man of letters has ever devoted himself to a task with such whole-hearted devotion as Parkman. He knew the old bloody frontier as Scott knew the border marches. He was soaked in New England tradition. He prepared himself for writing about Indians by living for months in their wigwams. He was intimate with old French life, and he spent some time in a religious house that he might catch something of the spirit which played so great a part in the early history of Canada. On the top of all this, he had the well-balanced, unprejudiced mind of the great chronicler, and he cultivated a style which was equally removed from insipidity and from affectation. As to his industry and resolution, they are shown by the fact that he completed his volumes after he had been stricken by blindness. It is hard to name any historian who has such an equipment as this, from his Pioneers of the New World to his Conspiracy of Pontiac, I have read his twelve volumes twice over, and put some small reflection of them into my refugees. We explored not only the beautiful tragic Lake George, but also its great neighbour, Lake Champlain, almost as full of historical reminiscence. Upon this, level with the head of the smaller lake, stood Ticonderoga, the chief seat of the French-Canadian power. Some five miles separated from Lake George, up which the British came buzzing whenever they were strong enough to do so. Once in front of the palisades of Ticonderoga they met with heavy defeat, and yet once again by the valour of the newly enrolled Black Watch. They swept the place off the map. I wonder if Stevenson had actually been there before he wrote his eerie haunting ballad, the second finest of the sort, in my opinion, in our literature. It is more than likely since he spent some time in the neighbouring Adirondacks, Pious hands were restoring the old fort of Ticonderoga, much of which has been uncovered. All day we skirted Lake Champlain, into which the old French explorer first found his way, and where he made the dreadful mistake of mixing in Indian warfare, which brought the whole bloodthirsty vendetta of the five nations upon the young French settlements. Up at the head of the lake we saw Plattsburgh, where the Americans gained a victory in the War of 1812. The sight of these battlefields, whether they mark British or American successes, always fills me with horror. If the war of 1776 was, 
as I hold, a glorious mistake, that of 1812 was a senseless blunder. Had neither occurred, the whole of North America would now be one magnificent undivided country, pursuing its own independent destiny, and yet united in such unblemished ties of blood and memory to the old country that each could lean at all times upon the other. It is best for Britishers, no doubt, that we should never lean upon anything bigger than ourselves. But I see no glory in these struggles, and little wisdom in the statesmen who waged them. Among them they split the race from base to summit, and who has been the gainer? Not Britain, who was alienated from so many of her very best children. Not America, who lost Canada and had on her hands a civil war which a united empire could have avoided. Ah, well, there is a controlling force somewhere, and the highest wisdom is to believe that all things are ordered for the best. About evening we crossed the Canadian frontier. The Richelieu River, down which the old Iroquois scalping parties used to creep, gleaming coldly in the twilight. There is nothing to show where you have crossed that border. There is the same sort of country, the same cultivation, the same plain wooden houses, Nothing was changed, save that suddenly I saw a little old ensign flying on a gable, and it gives you a thrill when you have not seen it for a time. It is not until one has reached the prairie country that the traveller meets with new conditions and new problems. He traverses Ontario with its prosperous mixed farms and its fruit-growing villages, but the general effect is the same as in Eastern America. Then comes the enormous stretch of the Great Lakes, those wonderful inland seas, with great ocean-going steamers. We saw the newly built Neuronic, destined altogether for passenger traffic, and worthy to compare, both in internal fittings and outward appearance, with many an Atlantic liner. The Indians looked in amazement at La Salle's little vessel. I wondered what La Salle and his men would think of the Neuronic. For two days in great comfort we voyaged over the inland waters. They lay peaceful for our passage, but we heard grim stories of winter gusts, and of ships, which were never heard of more. It is not surprising that there should be accidents, for the number of vessels is extraordinary, and being constructed with the one idea of carrying the maximum of cargo, they appeared to be not very stable. I am speaking now of the whaleback freight carriers, and not of the fine passenger service, which could not be beaten. I have said that the number of vessels is extraordinary. I have been told that the tonnage passing through Salt-Saint-Marie, where the lakes join, is greater than that of any port in the world. All the supplies and manufactures for the west move one way, while the corn of the Great Prairie and the ores from the Lake Superior copper and iron mines move the other. In the fall there comes the triumphant procession of the harvest. Surely in more poetic days banners might have waved and cymbals clashed, and priests of Ceres sung their hymns in the vanguard, as this flotilla of mercy moved majestically over the face of the waters to the aid of hungry Europe. However, we have cut out the frills, to use the vernacular, though life would be none the worse could we tinge it a little with the iridescence of romance. We stopped at Salt-Saint-Marie, the neck of the hourglass between the two great lakes of Huron and Superior. There were several things there which are worthy of record. The lakes are of a different level, and the lock, which avoids the dangerous rapids, is on an enormous scale. But beside it, unnoticed save by those who know where to look and what to look for, 
There is a little stone-lined cutting no larger than an uncovered drain. It is the detour by which for centuries the voyageurs, trappers and explorers move their canoes round the salt or fall on their journey to the great solitudes beyond. Close by it is one of the old Hudson Bay log forts with its fireproof roof, its loopholed walls and every other device for Indian fighting. Very small and mean these things look by the side of the great locks and the huge steamers within them. But where would locks and steamers have been had these others not taken their lives in their hands to clear the way? The twin cities of Fort William and Port Arthur, at the head of Lake Superior, form the most growing community of Canada. They call them twin cities, but I expect, like their Siamese predecessors, they will grow into one. Already the suburbs join each other, though proximity does not always lead to amalgamation or even to cordiality as in the adjacent towns of St. Paul and Minneapolis. When the little American boy was asked in Sunday school who persecuted St. Paul, he guessed it was Minneapolis. But in the case of Fort William and Port Arthur, they are so evidently interdependent that it is difficult to believe that they will fail to coalesce. When they do, I am of opinion that they may grow to be a Canadian Chicago, and possibly become the greatest city in the country. All lines converge there, as does all the lake traffic, and everything from east to west must pass through it. If I were a rich man and wished to become richer, I should assuredly buy land in the Twin Cities. Though they lie in the very centre of the broadest portion of the continent, the water communications are so wonderful that an ocean-going steamer from Liverpool or Glasgow can now unload at their quays. The grain elevators of Fort William are really majestic erections, and with a little change of their construction might be aesthetic as well. Even now the huge cylinders into which they are divided look at a little distance not unlike the columns of Luxor. This branch of human ingenuity has been pushed at Fort William to its extreme. The last word has been said there upon every question covering the handling of grain. By some process, which is far beyond my unmechanical brain, the stuff is even divided automatically according to its quality, and there are special hospital elevators where damaged grain can be worked up into a more perfect article. By the way, it was here, while lying at a steamship wharf on the very edge of the city, that I first made the acquaintance of one of the original inhabitants of Canada. A cleared plain stretched from the ship to a wood some hundreds of yards off. As I stood upon deck I saw what I imagined to be a horse wander out of the wood, and begin to graze in the clearing. The creature seemed ewe-necked beyond all possibility, and looking closer I saw to my surprise that it was a wild, hornless moose. Could anything be more characteristic of the present condition of Canada? The great mechanical developments of Fort William within gunshot of me on one side, and this shy wanderer of the wilderness on the other. In a few years the dweller in the great city will read of my experience with the same mixture of incredulity and surprise with which we read the occasional correspondence whose grandfather shot a woodcock in Maida Vale. The true division between the east and west of Canada is not the Great Lakes, which are so valuable as a waterway, but lies in the five hundred miles of country between the lakes and Winnipeg. It is barren but beautiful, covered with forest which is not large enough to be of value as lumber. It is a country of rolling plains, 
covered with low trees with rivers in the valleys. The soil is poor. It is really a problem what to do with this belt, which is small, according to Canadian distance, but is nonetheless broader than the distance between London and Edinburgh. Unless minerals are found in it, I should think that it will be to Canada what the highlands of Scotland are to Britain, a region set apart for sport because it has no other economic use. The singular thing about this barren tree land is that it quite suddenly changes to the fertile prairie at a point to the east of Winnipeg. I presume that there is some geological reason, but it was strange to see the fertile plain run up to the barren woods with as clear a division as there is between the sea and the shore. And now one reaches the west of Winnipeg, and that prairie which means so much both to Canada and to the world. It was wonderfully impressive to travel swiftly all day from the early summer dawn to the latest evening light, and to see always the same little clusters of houses, always the same distant farms, always the same huge expanse stretching to the distant skyline, mottled with cattle, or green with the half-grown crops. You think these people are lonely. What about the people beyond them, and beyond them again, each family in its rude barracks in the midst of the hundred and sixty acres which form the minimum farm? No doubt they are lonely, and yet there are alleviations. When men or women are working on their own property, and seeing their fortune growing, they have pleasant thoughts to bear them company. It is the women, I am told, who feel it most, and who go prairie mad. Now they have rigged telephone circles, which connect up small groups of farms, and enable the women to relieve their lives by a little friendly gossip, when the whole district thrills to the news that Mrs. Jones has been in the cars to Winnipeg, and bought a new bonnet. At the worst, the loneliness of the prairie can never, one would think, have the soul-killing effect of loneliness in a town. There is always the wind on the heath, brother. Besides, the wireless has now arrived, and that is the best friend of the lonely man. Land is not so easily picked up by the emigrant, as in the old days, when a hundred and sixty acres beside the railroad were given away free. There was still in 1914 free land to be had, but it was in the back country. However, this back country of today is always liable to be opened up by the branch railway lines tomorrow. On the whole, however, it seems to be more economical, if the emigrant has the money, to buy a partially developed, well-situated farm than to take up a virgin homestead. That is what the American emigrants do who have been pouring into the country, and they know best the value of such farms, having usually come from exactly similar ones just across the border, the only difference being that they can get ten acres in Canada for the price of one in Minnesota or Iowa. They hasten to take out their papers of naturalization and make, it is said, most excellent and contented citizens. Their energy and industry are remarkable. A body of them had reached the land which they proposed to buy about the time that we were in the West. They had come over the border with their wagons, their horses, and their ploughs. Being taken to the spot by the land agent, the leader of the party tested the soil, cast a rapid glance over the general prairie, and then cried, "'I guess this will do, boys. Get off the ploughs.' The agent who was present told me that they had broken an acre of the prairie before they slept that night. These men were German Lutherans from Minnesota, and they settled in the neighbourhood of Scott. The gains on the farms are very considerable. It is not unusual for a man to pay every expense which he has incurred, including the price of the land, 
within the first two years. After that, with decent luck, he should be a prosperous man, able to bring up a family in ease and comfort. If he be British and desires to return to the old country, it should not be difficult for him to save enough in ten or twelve years to make himself, after selling his farm, more or less independent for life. That is, as it seems to me, an important consideration for many people who hesitate to break all the old ties and feel that they are leaving their motherland forever. So much about farms and farming. I cannot see how one can write about this western part and avoid the subject which is written in green and gold from sky to sky. There is nothing else. Nowhere is there any sign of yesterday. Not a cairn, not a monument. Life has passed here, but has left no footstep behind. But stay, the one thing which the old life still leaves is just this one thing, footsteps. Look at them in the little narrow black paths which converge to the water, little dark ruts which wind and twist. Those are the buffalo runs of old. Gone are the Cree and Blackfoot hunters who shot them down. Gone too the fur traders who bought the skins. Chief Factor McTavish, who entered into the great company's service as a boy, spent his life in slow promotion from fort this to fort that, and made a decent Presbyterian woman of some Indian squaw, finally saw with horror in his old age that the world was crowding his wild beasts out of their pastures. Gone are the great herds upon which both Indian hunter and fur trader were parasitical. Indian, trader, and buffalo all have passed, and here on the great plains are these narrow runways, as the last remaining sign of a vanished world. Edmonton is the capital of the western side of the prairie, even as Winnipeg is of the eastern. I do not suppose the average Briton has the least conception of the amenities of Winnipeg. He would probably be surprised to hear that the Fort Garry Hotel there is nearly as modern and luxurious as any hotel in Northumberland Avenue. There were no such luxuries in 1914 in Edmonton. The town was in a strangely half-formed condition, rude and raw, but with a great atmosphere of energy, bustle, and future greatness. With its railway connections and waterways, it is bound to be a large city. At the time of our visit, the streets were full of out-of-works. Great husky men, some of them of magnificent physique, who found themselves at a loss, on account of cessations in railroad construction. They told me that they would soon be reabsorbed, but meantime the situation was the rudest object lesson in economies that I have ever witnessed. Here were these splendid men, ready and willing to work. Here was a new country calling in every direction for labour. How come the two things to be even temporarily disconnected? There could be but one word. It was want of capital, and why was the capital wanting? Why was the work of the railroads held up? Because the money market was tight in London. London, which finds, according to the most recent figures, 73% of all the monies with which Canada is developed. Such was the state of things. What will amend it? How can capital be made to flow into the best channels? By encouragement and security, and the hope of good returns. I never heard of any system of socialism which did not seem to defeat the very object which it had at heart. And yet it was surely deplorable that the men should be there, and that the work should be there, and that none could command the link which would unite them. A line of low distant hills broke the interminable plain which has extended with hardly a rising for fifteen hundred miles. Above them was, here and there, a peak of snow, shades of main reed, 
They were the Rockies, my old familiar Rockies. Have I been here before? What an absurd question! When I lived here for about ten years of my life, in all the hours of dreamland, what deeds have I not done among redskins and trappers and grizzlers within their wilds? And here they were at last, glimmering bright in the rising morning sun. At least I have seen my dream mountains. Most boys never do. Jasper Park is one of the great national playgrounds and health resorts, which the Canadian government, with great wisdom, has laid out for the benefit of the citizens. When Canada has filled up and carries a large population, she will bless the foresight of the administrators who took possession of broad tracts of the most picturesque land and put them forever out of the power of the speculative dealer. The National Park at Banff has for twenty years been a mecca for tourists. That at Algonquin gives a great pleasure ground to those who cannot extend their travels beyond eastern Canada. But this new Jasper Park is the latest and the wildest of all these reserves. Some years ago it was absolute wilderness, and much of it impenetrable. Now, through the energy of Colonel Rogers, trails have been cut through it in various directions, and a great number of adventurous trips into country which is practically unknown can be carried out with ease and comfort. The packer plays the part of a dragoman in the east, arranging the whole expedition, food, cooking, and everything else on inclusive terms, and once in the hands of a rocky mountain packer, a man of the standing of Fred Stevens or the Otto brothers, the traveller can rely upon a square deal and the companionship of one whom he will find to be a most excellent comrade. There is no shooting in the park. It is a preserve for all wild animals. But there is excellent fishing, and everywhere there are the most wonderful excursions where you sleep at night under the stars upon the balsamic fir branches which the packer gathers for your couch. I could not imagine an experience which would be more likely to give a freshet of vitality when the stream runs thin. For a week we lived the life of simplicity and nature. The park is not as full of wild creatures as it will be after a few years of preservation. The Indians who lived in this part rounded up everything that they could before moving to their reservation. But even now the bear lumbers through the brushwood, the eagle soars above the lake, the timber wolf still skulks in the night, and the deer graze in the valleys. Above, near the snow line, the wild goat is not uncommon, while at a lower altitude are found the mountain sheep. On the last day of our visit, the rare cinnamon bear exposed his yellow coat upon a clearing within a few hundred yards of the village. I saw his clumsy, good-humoured head looking at me from over a dead trunk, and I thanked the kindly Canadian law which has given him a place of sanctuary. What a bloodthirsty baboon man must appear to the lower animals! If any superhuman demon treated us exactly as we treat the pheasants, we should begin to reconsider our views as to what is sport. The porcupine is another creature which abounded in the woods. I did not see any, but a friend described an encounter between one and his dog. The creature's quills are detachable when he wishes to be nasty, and at the end of the fight it was not easy to say which was the dog and which the porcupine. Life in Jasper interested me as an experience of the first stage of a raw Canadian town. It will certainly grow into a considerable place, but at that time, bar Colonel Rogers's house and the station, there were only log huts 
and small wooden dwellings. Christianity was apostolic in its simplicity and in its freedom from strife. The one has to go back remarkably early in apostolic times to find those characteristics. Two churches were being built, the pastor in each case acting also as head mason and carpenter. One, the cornerstone of which I had the honour of laying, was to be used in turn by several nonconformist bodies. To the ceremony came the Anglican parson, grimy from his labours on the opposition building, and prayed for the well-being of his rival. The whole function, with its simplicity and earnestness, carried out by a group of ill-clad men, standing bareheaded in a drizzle of rain, seemed to me to have in it the essence of religion. As I ventured to remark to them, Kikuyu and Jasper can give some lessons to London. We made a day's excursion by rail to the Tet John Cash, which is across the British Columbian border, and marks the watershed between east and west. Here we saw the Fraser, already a formidable river, rushing down to the Pacific. At the head of the pass stands the village of the railway workers, exactly like one of the mining townships of Bret Hart, save that the bad man is never allowed to be too bad. There is a worse man in a red serge coat and a Stetson hat, who is told off by the state to look after him, and does his duty in such fashion that the most fire-eating desperado from across the border falls into the line of law. But apart from the gunman, this village presented exactly the same queer cabins, strange signs, and gambling rooms which the great American master has made so familiar to us. And now we were homeward bound, back through Edmonton, back through Winnipeg, back through that young giant, Fort William, but not back across the Great Lakes. Instead of that transit, we took train, by the courtesy of the Canadian Pacific, round the northern shore of Superior, a beautiful wooded desolate country, which, without minerals, offers little prospect for the future. Some two hundred miles north of it, the Grand Trunk, that enterprising pioneer of empire, has opened up another line which extends for a thousand miles, and should develop a new corn and lumber district. Canada is like an expanding flower. Wherever you look you see some fresh petal unrolling. We spent three days at Algonquin Park. This place is within easy distance of Montreal, or Ottawa, and should become a resort of British fishermen and lovers of nature. After all, it is little more than a week from London, and many a river in Finland takes nearly as long to reach. There is good hotel accommodation, and out of the thousand-odd lakes in this enormous natural preserve, one can find all sorts of fishing, though the best is naturally the most remote. I had no particular luck myself, but my wife caught an eight-pound trout, which Mr. Bartlett, the courteous superintendent of the park, mounted, so as to confound all doubters. Deer abound in the park, and the black bear is not uncommon, while wolves can often be heard howling in the night-time. What will be the destiny of Canada? Some people talk as if it were in doubt. Personally, I have none upon the point. Canada will remain exactly as she is for two more generations. At the end of that time there must be reconsideration of the subject, especially on the part of Great Britain, who will find herself with a child as large as herself under the same roof. I see no argument for the union of Canada with the United States. There is excellent feeling between the two countries, but they could no more join at this period of their history than a great oak could combine with a well-rooted pine to make one tree. 
The roots of each are far too deep. It is impossible. Then there is the alternative of Canada becoming an independent nation. That is not so impossible as a union with the States, but it is in the last degree improbable. Why should Canada wish her independence? She has it now in every essential, but her first need is the capital and the population which will develop her enormous territory and resources. This capital she now receives from the mother country, to the extent in 1914 of 73%, the United States finding 14%, and Canada herself the remaining 13. Her dependence upon the mother country for emigrants, though not so great as her financial dependence, is still the greatest from any single source. Besides all this, she has the vast insurance policy, which is called the British Navy, presented to her for nothing, though honour demands some premium from her in the future. And she has the British Diplomatic Service for her use unpaid. Altogether, looking at it from the material side, Canada's interests lie deeply in the present arrangement. But there is a higher and more unselfish view, which works even more strongly in the same direction. Many of the most representative Canadians are descendants of those United Empire loyalists, who in 1782 gave up everything and emigrated from the United States in order to remain under the flag. Their imperialism is as warm or warmer than our own, and everywhere there is a consciousness of the glory of the Empire, its magnificent future, and the wonderful possibilities of these great nations all growing up under the same flag, with the same language and destinies. This sentiment joins with material advantages, and will prevent Canada from having any aspiration towards independence. Yes, it will remain exactly as it is for the remainder of this century. At the end of that time, her population and resources will probably considerably exceed those of the motherland, and problems will arise which our children's children may have some difficulty in solving. As to the French-Canadian, he will always be a conservative force. Let him call himself what he will. His occasional weakness for flying the French flag is not to be resented, but is rather a pathetic and sentimental tribute to a lost cause, like that which adorns every year the pedestal of Charles at Whitehall. I had some presentiment of coming trouble during the time we were in Canada, though I never imagined that we were so close to the edge of a world war. One incident which struck me forcibly was the arrival at Vancouver of a ship full of Sikhs who demanded to be admitted to Canada. This demand was resisted on account of the immigration laws. The whole incident seemed to me to be so grotesque, for why should sun-loving Hindus force themselves upon Canada? that I was convinced some larger purpose lay behind it. That purpose was, as we can now see, to promote discord among the races under the British flag. There can be no doubt that it was German money that chartered that ship. I had several opportunities of addressing large and influential Canadian audiences, and I never failed to insist upon the sound state of the home population. The Canadians judge us too often by our ne'er-do-wills and remittance-men, who are the sample Englishmen who come before them. In defence, even of these samples, it should be stated that they bulked very large in the 1st Canadian Division. I told the Canadians of our magnificent Boy Scout movement, and also of the movement of old soldiers to form a National Guard, a country where both the old and the young can start new, unselfish, patriotic movements is a live country, I said. And if we are tested, 
we will prove just as good as ever our fathers were. I did not dream how near the test would be, how hard it would press, or how gloriously it would be met. And now I turn to the war, the physical climax of my life, as it must be of the life of every living man and woman. Each was caught as a separate chip, and swept into that fearsome whirlpool, where we all gyrated for four years, some sinking forever, some washed up all twisted and bent, and all of us showing in our souls and bodies some mark of the terrible forces which had controlled us so long. I will show presently how the war reacted upon me, and also, if one may speak without presumption, how, in a minute way, I in turn reacted upon the war. End of chapter 25